Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Samantha Mikey, sitting in today for Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, and joining me is Rob Mathis. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me, Rob. Today, we're very lucky to have a very special guest, all the way from my case, Nikki Black, the evangelist for my case. Nikki, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself? Um, sure thing. I am a New York-based attorney. I've been practicing law since the mid-90s. I started out as a public defender, then I was with a civil litigation firm. I'm now the legal technology evangelist for my case. You might be wondering what that means. What does someone with that title do? I advise internally on um, product development, features that lawyers will use and how they'll use them and um, marketing. And then externally, I educate lawyers about the intersection of law and tech and how they can use tech in their practices. I've written some books. I write um, articles for a bunch of different outlets and I speak at conferences like this one. Yes, and I should have said at the beginning that we're here in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the next conference, which is the State Bar of Michigan's annual conference. And we were very fortunate to have Nikki join us to do three different sessions today. So we're putting her on a marathon. Nikki, why don't we kick off by talking about the plenary session you did, which had such a really interesting concept behind it, talking about artificial intelligence and the law. What do solo and small firm practitioners need to know about that? Well, the... Uh, artificial intelligence is one of the um, emerging areas that I've really been focusing on, and, and I think that it offers a lot of potential for lawyers in general and solos and smalls as well in terms of ways of increasing efficiencies in their practice and automating their practice. And um, one of the things I'd really focused on during my talk, um, I really wanted to have them leave with an understanding of artificial intelligence and its impact on the practice of law, but also some practical ways they can automate their practices today without actually using artificial intelligence. So what are some easy tips that they can, I imagine practicing attorneys thinking about this and feeling a little bit overwhelmed by this topic. So what are some quick fire takeaways they can, they can have about artificial intelligence? Well, so, um, you know, there's a bunch of different emerging areas where you're going to see this technology playing out for lawyers, legal research, um, data analytics in terms of uh, providing data about judges and um, opposing counsel and trial outcomes, and also ways of analyzing contracts and providing lawyers who draft contracts with um, analysis of what paragraphs are missing or where the outlier paragraphs are. So those are some emerging areas, but another thing I'd really focused on was helping lawyers understand how to automate their practice today without using AI tools. There's a lot of software out there that helps lawyers automate the fundamental things they do on a day-to-day basis to run their practices. So billing, you know, time tracking, billing, and invoicing. You can, um, whether you're using standalone apps, billing software, or practice management software, you can enter time on a mobile device so that you don't lose track of time. You know, you're in the courthouse and you speak to them, you're there for a case, you run into a poison counsel and an Another case in the hallway, you know, you can build the time for both those cases before you even leave the courthouse and you don't lose track of it. So that was one area. 
you know, and then you can automatically send invoices through the software to your clients. They can pay using um, a credit card or ACH. And mm -hmm. so you avoid all of the hassle of having to print out bills and having mm -hmm. to send, you know, send them and wait to be paid. And it can all happen almost instantaneously. You don't have to remember to do that yourself. It just kind of takes care of it for you. Right. And the software oftentimes fills a lot of the information in. So you're not drafting invoices from scratch. So th that was one area. Another area that I talked about was um, like document automation. We've all been doing document automation forever with word processing software, but when you attach other software to that, not only does it have a, um, a template, but the information's automatically filled in rather than you having to fill that information in because it's already part of the practice management system or whatever other software you're using. So those are cool. just some ideas. So this is a, a new area for me. And so um, what is the difference between artificial intelligence and automation? Or are they pretty much the same thing? Well... Automation's really, it's a very simplistic form of algorithms and software, whereas artificial intelligence is, like, is the next level. So I guess the example, the example I used during my presentation was um, the difference between um, cruise control, dynamic cruise control in some of the newer vehicles versus self-driving cars. So dynamic cruise control, what it helps you do is, when you're using it on the highway, stay in your lane, stay at a... Um, particular distance between all the cars and stay at a certain speed. But what's interesting to me, I recently drove a car that has that. Not only does it keep you in your lane, it doesn't just buzz when you go out of your lane, it actually steers. You know, mm -hmm. you're supposed to steer as well, but it actually keeps you in your lane by steering, slows down when you approach other cars and keeps this big distance and confuses the other vehicles at this point, I think. But, <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> but it, you know, it, it, but that's almost automation, right? It's, you're making the analytical decisions about whether to stop quickly, but with the self-driving cars, the car makes that decision for you. And one of the most interesting ethical issues that's cropped up out of that is when the car is trying to avoid an accident, does it preserve the lives of the people in the car or the, preserve the lives of everybody generally and therefore kill the people in the car because more people will live if it makes a certain that are ex outside the car, you know, and then that comes into that issue of trust. Do you trust the car to make the decision that's in your best interest? And the same thing applies with legal software. And that's where a lot of lawyers run into some issues with trusting the output at this point. So it's going to take time to trust the output. Mm -hmm. So another one of your uh, marathon sessions today was lawyers, cloud and mobile computing and ethics. You'd like to talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, so I've been talking about and writing about the cloud since about 2008, I started writing articles and then I pitched a proposal to the ABA because I was already writing my social media book for them with Carolyn Oliphant for a cloud book. So I co-authored, or I wrote Cloud Computing in New York um, that was published in 2012. And so I've been following the cloud for years now and I've been convinced since 2008 or nine that lawyers are gonna start needing to use the cloud, that it was where computing was going. And I think at this point it's pretty clear that Everything's moving into the cloud. A lot of legacy premise software is moving into the cloud that lawyers have traditionally used. They're getting rid of their premise-based products. So, you know, what lawyers need to, they need to learn about the cloud, try not to get overwhelmed, learn about it in bits and bytes. I really stress that throughout all my presentations. And then they need to understand how to vet the third-party cloud providers because they've always outsourced their data to third parties. They outsource papers, now they're outsourcing data. You just need to make sure, um, you have to ask the right questions and make sure that your data is going to be safe and that you're exercising reasonable care to preserve the confidentiality. And you, don't, you aren't required to have absolute security, it's just a reasonable level of security. Do you find that the ethical standards vary by jurisdiction when it comes to protecting your data in the cloud, or is it kind of across the board, the same kind of rules apply? Generally speaking, the um, like 
more than 30, I think 35 to 40 jurisdictions have addressed it at this point, and they all pretty much say the same thing. You know, you have to exercise reasonable care to ensure confidential client data, mean, you know, it's, confidentiality is maintained, and they often stress the same things that lawyers need to look into when vetting the provider. You need to understand the encryption levels and that it's encrypted at rest and in transit. You need to understand geo-redundancy, so you need to understand... Um, where the data is being kept, and hopefully it's being backed up in two different parts of the country so that even if one server is lost in a natural disaster, the other one remains with all your data. You need to understand the um, company itself. How long have they been around? Have they been funded? Are they publicly traded? Like, how stable are they? How long have they been here? Are they, are they going somewhere? Are they here, for, here to stay? Where are they located? Another thing I always bring up is you need to think about um, integrations because more and more often there's integrations into software, but those pose... They offer a lot of convenience, but they also pose security risks because it's one more third party to vet. And then you have to regularly vet these third parties, most of the opinions say, every year or so. So there's just a bunch of different considerations. It's pretty consistent across the board in terms of what they all want you to take a look at mm -hmm. to ensure that the data is still secure with that company. So I think that is a good segue into the last session that we had you do today, which is... Mining social media for evidence, the ethics and practicalities of that. And I understand that the ethics and practicalities of social media are a little bit more complex than they are for cloud computing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, so when it comes to mining social media, using it for litigation, there's two areas. Lawyers will mine it for evidence for litigation and matrimonial matters and that type of thing. And then they'll also research jurors on social media. And right now, only a handful of jurisdictions have addressed it, um, either of those issues. And on both sets of issues, they've come down in different, well, it's particularly the researching the jurors, but they've handed down a couple different lines of opinions and analysis on it. And so when you're in a jurisdiction that hasn't addressed it, sometimes it's a little unclear how to deal with it. But I always tell lawyers that the best thing to do is to err on the side of caution. Um, when I was in law school, my New York Civil Procedure professor used to always say, let it be SEC, somebody else's case that's on the line. You know, you don't want to do something that you're not sure about. Let it be someone else's law license on the line. If, you, if it's unclear to you which um, rule applies in your jurisdiction, err on the side of caution and just take the safer route. Are there some um, recent ethics decisions about the social media across the nation? Well, so with mining social media for evidence, for the most part, anything that, what, what almost all the jurisdictions say is whatever's publicly viewable um, is fair game, even if the person's represented by counsel. But then when it's behind those privacy walls, and you have to be friends with someone or connected with them to see it, then the majority have said that you can't be misleading um, and you can't be deceitful. If you want to connect with that person to see what's behind that privacy wall for litigation purposes, you or one of your agents needs to tell that person, I'm so-and-so, I'm related to this law firm, and this, I want to connect with you because of this litigation. And anyone who has half a sense is going to say, I don't want to be your friends. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's pretty simple when it comes to um, jurors and uh researching jurors on social media. The biggest issue that, um, and it's divided, the ABA has gone one way, the New York State Bar has gone another, and a, another jurisdiction joined the ABA, I can't remember which one, but is the biggest issue is you can only look at publicly available information because it's jurors, but then if you look at them and they're notified, which is what happens on LinkedIn, if someone looks at your profile, they're notified, that's a passive notification. Is that an impermissible communication with jurors? The ABA has said it is okay that you can do that. The New York State Bar said it's an impermissible communication. And so in that case, you either need to log out of LinkedIn before you look so that that way they don't know who looked at it or else change your settings so that you're anonymous and it just says an anonymous person looked at it. 
So that, that's sort of the, in a nutshell, it's a little more, hmm. a little more complexity, but that's sort of in a nutshell what the issues are with that right now. Very interesting. Well, I think we've come to the end of the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Nikki. That was really interesting. Thanks. My pleasure. A lot of information in a short amount of time. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but that, that we're excited that you're here to give it to us. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you all for joining us here on the Legal Talk Network for another edition of the On Balance podcast from the State Bar of Michigan. You can find the podcast in the Apple Podcast app or online on the Legal Talk Network's website. I'm Samantha Mikey, standing in for Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS, find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.